It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE Community Show and this show are now available on iTunes and Stitcher. So please subscribe and rate us and that helps others find the shows. My name is Kay Wenigal and I'm joined today by my co-host Natalie Bucknell. Hi Kay, hi listeners. Now, each of the regional BZE plans, such as repowering Port Augusta and the Northern Territory 10 gigawatt vision, consider it very important to include a focus, on, chief focus in fact, on working with local communities to benefit and enhance their opportunities and environment. Today, we'll find out about an organisation which is doing exciting work with remote Indigenous communities to develop regional economies while combating climate change. We're talking today with Michael Frangos, the CEO of Indigenous Energy Australia, and Michael is speaking to us from IEA's headquarters in Brisbane. Hi, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Okay. Very nice to be here. Now, firstly, Michael, can you tell me a bit about yourself and how you got to be CEO of IEA? Uh, yeah, sure, I can. So IEA started, actually, where myself and uh, co-founder Josh Hollingsworth um, each other in university. Um, I myself am a, am a renewable energy systems engineer um, and I was learning about um, solar technology and wind technology and um, Josh, who is an Indigenous man from um, up in Lockhart River region, Kukiao. Um, so Lockhart River, what, that's up north? Yeah. Way up north? York. Yeah. In Queensland? Uh-huh. Yeah, yep. and he's a Kukiao traditional owner up there, his, his, um, his family from his dad's side. Um, they're in the middle of getting some land back and they were just, you know, naive 18-year-olds talking about what you might do with that land and had the solar idea in my head. So we thought that I'd be a good idea to put solar and wind up there. And that was about that was about it there. And then later on in my university career, I completed a thesis with Engineers Without Borders on engineering on country. And that particular thesis and industry report focused on how one might implement renewable energy with remote Aboriginal communities um, and highlighted some really strong links between Indigenous culture and practice and the underlying principle in renewable energy. Um, and and in that kind of body of work, we really started understanding that not about the approach, but more about the... Uh, sorry, not about the technical solution, but more about the approach and the way in which you um, execute a project and then operate maintain. So what aspects um, of the approach are important, Michael? Um, primarily engagement and very important and really working with the community to, for want of a better word, assess the community, understand the capacity and characteristics and outcomes of the community, um, the, the, the main ones. But then from, from, from getting that understanding, we, we moved apart and we kind of always had a 
Kala is to a ground in this space and, and, and didn't grow our knowledge. Um, but then in about 2016, Josh called me up and said, remember that unit, that idea we had very naively down at university? Uh, I'd be open to giving that a go. And I said, yeah, I've been thinking the same thing as well. Oh, um, fantastic. That was the, <laughs> the, the genesis of IA. So we've been going, going pretty strong since, uh, yeah, 2016, 2017. So can you give us a bit more of an idea of what IEA does? And I, from what I read... Are you the world's first Indigenous-owned and operated essential services company? Yes, we are, and we um, there's, a, there's a few Indigenous organisations out there that um, will provide power or provide water services, but we're the first to the whole the whole gambit, the whole range of things, enabling infrastructure, we use the term, or essential services that so we've expanded from... So what from does that, that include? Term. Yeah, so enabling infrastructure is a whole range of things, but we usually list them out as waste services, so municipal waste, water services, so stormwater, potable water and wastewater treatment, energy services, um, transport and telecommunication. So all those kind of fundamental cornerstone enabling infrastructure that you need to then progress further with your economic development. Um, so you need, you know, roads in to or roads in or transport into a community Internet in the kind of modern age is, is essential and telephone reception. Um, obviously, you need electricity to power things, other energy for heating and cooking, um, and, and a way to kind of get rid of your waste, both your water waste as well as your municipal solid waste. So um, do you provide the what the project management or design or both or more? Yeah, so what we do is uh, we've got really two main goals that I am combating climate change and improving Australian livelihood, and then the kind of the offering, the kind of step below that is what we do is we we develop infrastructure projects with all types of communities, and those communities can range from indigenous communities to remote regional communities, just vulnerable communities that are located in a metropolitan area. Metropolitan area, but what we do is we engage the community from um, where to go, so to speak, so conceptualisation right through to operation maintenance. So. Um, probably a bit more than a project manager. Mm. We work with community, establish a relationship and actually understand the community characteristics and what outcomes they're trying to achieve and also what knowledge they might hold. Um, and then we go and we try to link up with other industry partners, government partners, academic partners um, and see how we can kind of maybe achieve or have some of those community outcomes um, come to fruition or at least or at least contribute to some of those um, community character uh, community outcomes um, and all of our projects kind of try to adapt around community characteristics such as capacity cultural beliefs um, literacy numeracy all that type of thing and it, it really depends on the project so some projects we're involved in a kind of a halfway through we we jump on in and we um, try to engage the community and adjust the project accordingly and then the kind of more more successful ones, ones we prefer, other ones where we kind of start with the community industry partner, and then we kind of mediate and and facilitate communication between a number of stakeholders to uh, try to balance the outcomes of the project. So once again, Michael, you've emphasised this engagement as element of the projects, and it sounds like you're developing some expertise in that area. But are, are there elements of the engagement that are transferable between projects or do you really have to start from scratch and make that up with each different context? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. Um, so so there's a bit of a balance. Um, so we're often asked by industry and government, what's the silver bullet? Um, come up with the silver bullet and, you know, 
we'll give you a lot of contracts, but we we kind of err away from there being a silver bullet. And my answer to that is customization, customization, customization. Okay, so there's um, not much cookie cutter involved. Yeah, well, there's at a very high level there is there is definitely cookie cutter, um, and the cookie cutter is just engage your community properly. So you can yeah. <laughs> there's some key characteristics that are important for any community that you want to understand. Um, so you can basically what we do is we've got a, a set of questions or characteristics or um, assessments that we we do on the community. So we understand what the key industries are, what what the most common p- career or profession is, um, what the kind of skill set um, at an individual level and kind of at a higher level is of the community. Um, and if you do if you do that approach, it's pretty high level. So you've got to really go and do all the work again with each community. Um, but it's a guide or a framework and just structures how you engage a community. Um, and then there's also the kind of, that's, that's harder stuff. There's also the kind of softer skilled stuff, which is just actually about trying to have all decisions equitable with every, every partner as well. Not just, it can't just be all community centric. If there's an industry partner that's contributing, then if we try to incorporate their kind of, um, their priorities as well. Is that the the approach that you call the IEA approach? Yeah, yes. So the IEA approach is basically the development of development of those projects uh, with community in a way that adapts around community characteristics. It um, leverages community knowledge, so we often find there's little gems in every community, um, indigenous or otherwise, that we can utilise in project planning, project management, project conceptualisation, um, and then finally all of our projects aim to uh, achieve, uh, contribute, if not achieve, a um, community outcome, whether that be a employment outcome or engagement outcome or a, um, education outcome or a kind of physical outcome, something like a, a business venture or um, something like that to, to get established later on down the track. Um, but that's essentially the I approach. And there's one, there's one actual thing, so I'll just mention this one. The IA approach, we try to take quite a socially and environmentally motivated, but we try to take quite a commercial lens to it. Um, and the reason about the reason to that is sustainability. So um, we believe, and we're a profit for purpose, a for-profit organisation, that we believe we can demonstrate projects that are socially and environmentally motivated and achieve social and environmental outcome can stack up economically and even be attractive economically. Uh, the more people are going to do those projects and you're going to create an industry out of achieving those outcomes. And then the same goes for an organisation. If we can prove an organisation that is there to achieve environmental and social outcome, which is commonly associated with non-for-profit, can turn a, a good profit, um, we're going to encourage more competitors and create a bit of a market or an industry out of doing the same things that we're doing. So what does that term profit for purpose mean, Michael? Um, yeah, so the... Profit for purpose term is the same as kind of a social enterprise that we like it because it um, makes it really clear about what we're here to do. So we're here for a probably what we believe is a, a really um, important purpose. Um, that's that social kind of livelihood improvement and climate, combating climate change. Um, so those two things are often associated with a non-for-profit social good and kind of um, environmental causes. And then it just ties in with the for-profit. So the for-profit organisations we use this profit, but all that profit gets turned back into the, our outcomes. So we'll, we will generate a profit as a business, but then 
all that money is going to do is paying people that are working on this kind of social outcome for the economy or for society or back into to projects that we're working on. So you're basically recycling um, any profit made back into the achieving those social outcomes or that purpose. So on your website, you state that IEA project utilise environment-specific design while implementing industry-proven technologies and utilising traditional knowledge. Mm-hmm. Can and you know you've just mentioned that as well? Can you give us examples of how you use that traditional knowledge? Um, yeah, so there's there's a few examples, but there's there's a lot of examples around using uh, the height of like uh, bees' nests and wasps' nests, generally where they it will tell you where the water level will rise to. Um, so you can use that in your project planning to understand, okay, we need to set our asset above this level. Is that um, a seasonal thing? Yeah, it's a, I, yeah, I believe so, yeah. Um, it's a, and you can use, I believe you can use it um, all year round, actually. I think you can, depending on, it's depending on the year, one in kind of five year, ten year flood, be less accurate, but um, for a, a year round, year-round thing, you'll be able to use kind of mm. animals and that other thing. Um, there's also knowledge around the, the there was a solar system that was on um, dual-axis trackers, so they track the sun, east, west, north, south. They, there was no engagement made. Um, there's a particular type of ant that gets into things and it got into these dual-axis trackers that are IP68 rated um, and <laughs> you had, you know, 300 and something uh, kilowatts of solar limped over because all the access trackers had has overheated. And then, so that's the project planning stuff that we've kind of, we've always nominated to industries very useful. Um, and then more recently, or probably two years now, we've been using um, project management as well. And a particular project management tool we use is so bioindicators or environmental indicators that have been used by Indigenous Australians for thousands of years to adapt the way they, like, they live their lives and to understand what the environment is is telling them. And that stuff like fruit dropping, insects coming in, fish coming, certain fish coming in, you know, being around in a bay, um, that indicates that there's going to be some sort of weather event or weather change or that the ecosystem has changed for some reason. So you can use that to, um, you know, demobilise work or to adjust what you're doing or understand that um, possibly having an environmental effect that is um, untoward or, or not the greatest Listeners, if you've just joined us, we're speaking with Michael Frangos, the CEO of Indigenous Energy Australia. So, Michael, how does that tie in with the terminology that you've used about your on-country initiative? Is is that part of what you've just been discussing or is that another separate aspect? Yeah, the on-country initiative is, is does kind of tie into that one. So, we basically do two things at IEA. We have a kind of and we've just made it really firm about this is what we do. We've got a demonstration side of our business. So we actually go out and complete projects and demonstrate how you can incorporate um, Indigenous knowledge and how you take a community approach and how you incorporate community knowledge into your projects and benefits of that, the kind of real commercial benefits of that. But we also have the kind of a research or or evaluation arm and that's about um, kind of knowledge sharing. So that we use kind of try to evaluate abstract concepts such as using indigenous knowledge in project management um, and with scientific scientific method and kind of research papers and that type of thing and then to get that information out to industry. We, often what happens is we start, we have anecdotal information, we 
turn into academic information. And then we try to turn that academic information to probably more bite-sized industry language. Um, so it's really easily consumable and digestible. Um, and that's exactly what On Country is. So On Country basically got three aims um, to engage industry and Indigenous communities about outcomes they seek, um, irrespective of one another, um, challenges they face when they're working with one another, and the last the last part, which is probably to the point um, that we're talking about, is quantifying the links between Indigenous knowledge and practice and sustainable practice, which is becoming quite a popular trend in emerging in industry. So, yeah, really quantifying those links in quite a critical and scientific manner. So we've been in touch with a number of academic organisations and, and bodies on and how we actually um, quantify those links. Talking about those links, you you talk about links between Indigenous science and sustainability concepts such as a circular economy. Yeah. What is Indigenous science? Yeah, so Indigenous science is a um, is a term I borrowed from a lady by the name of Anne Paulina. Um, I... I heard it at um, a climate change conference, uh, Al Gore's climate change conference in and in June in Brisbane. I attended it, um, and I really liked it because it, um, it it just refers to indigenous knowledge and practices and and how they can be applied. But it's it's really a terminology thing, and it's just a part of making it you know part of our vocabulary. Mm. Um, and all all it really is is just affirming our our belief that there is a benefit in, in Indigenous knowledge and, and practices. Um, mm. So all too often we associate it with, um, you know, nice to have cultural, spiritual type of thing, which is also very valuable. But we we just like to affirm and, and what we see using our kind of critical thought is that um, Indigenous practices and knowledges and culture and beliefs actually have a real scientific value and can be used as science and, and, and it's uh, so common you see the bioindicators of things that environmental indicators that Indigenous Australians have used to adapt to um, environmental changes. Similar environmental indicators are used by environmental scientists to assess the effect of a, you know, all types of environmental and uh, all types of industrial and commercial activities, such as a wastewater treatment plant pumping effluent into a into a um, into a waterway. Um, species there that are indicated species and understand what the effect on that waterway or ecosystem is from that industrial activity. So, you know, just a kind of affirmation that that Indigenous science is actually science and um, can be used in that way. Michael, let's look at some specific examples of how this all goes into practice, having Mm -hmm. talked a lot about the theory. So can we have a look at some of your projects? You mentioned the Lockhart River Rooftop Solar Project. And you've, there's another very interesting project in the Majala Wilderness Centre. Mm-hmm. Uh, so firstly, whereabouts in Australia do you operate? And then could you tell us about some of those specific projects? Sure. So we operate across Australia. Um, we were very Queensland-centric initially. Um, we've spread our wings and we're yeah, operating all over. So we've got kind of initial projects all in South Australia. We're having some conversations. Western Australia, Torres Strait, or up the eastern eastern seaboard, out in kind of Northern Territory. Um, so it's pretty broad. Yeah, everywhere. So basically, we have a bit of a every community that approaches us, we try to work with um, in some capacity and try to leave on a positive note, even if we can't, um, you know, put in a solar system or a wastewater treatment system or help them establish an eco resort or tourism operation that they're after. 
we try to at least connect them and have a connection. So we always always try to do what we can to work with community. Um, that's just a bit of a kind of organisational commitment. Um, so what are you doing at the Magella Wilderness Centre? Yeah, so the Magella Wilderness Centre is a really interesting one. So the community out there um, have established a Wilderness Centre and Knowledge Hub um, and I think it's due to open sometime next year. And basically that centre will allow visitors come to that community and the traditional owners there and the Indigenous community there to share their um, share their culture and share their practices with, with visitors, but also share their country with visitors. So it's a kind of a cultural and spiritual experience as well as a bit of an environmental experience because um, it's out in the, out in the Kimberleys, the West Kimberleys. So, so what um, are the facilities that you're working on there? The facilities, yeah. So, so what we're doing there is we're installing a a total energy solution, so to speak, but that is just a solar array system uh, with a battery, possibly a battery system and a um, biodigester and a likely be a little uh, diesel generator there as well. Um, and the aim... Is and just the aim, as a backup? Yeah, just as solar. a backup. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So the aim there is for the solar battery system to be the main support for the community, so provide the majority of the energy needs all in an electrical form of energy, but then we're working with ATEC Biodigesters, which is a organisation that operates a lot in Southeast Asia, and they're also a kind of social enterprise, probably purpose organisation, I believe. Um, and they they aim to they install these little anaerobic digesters that you put organic matter into in mainly Cambodian communities, um, and it breaks down these these anaerobic digesters break down the organic material and produce a biogas that can be used to turn into electrical energy, but most commonly heat or cooking energy. Um, so that's the aim there, to install install an ATEC biodigester in um, one of these com- in Magellan community and um, use the energy for heating and cooking. And that'll be the first installation of ATEC technology in Australia. So How easy would that be to look project. after and maintain? Well, you can... It depends on how many bells and whistles you put on it anaerobic digester, but, but anaerobic digesters have been around for quite a long time um, and they can be a fairly agricultural technology, simple technology, which is what we prefer and kind of quite popular in um, rural parts of India and often they consist of two rainwater tanks, two rainwater tanks cut in half, the bottom half slightly larger than the top half and then you just fit it on with a water seal and put your organic material in there and then the kind of the bottom half of the rainwater tank will rise as the gas builds up. So we have a bit of a a kind of motto or a quote, say high spec, low tech, particularly in regional and remote communities. Um, And that means that you use really high specification, high high quality materials and equipment. Um, It's going to last for a long time. but you, use, you try to use a very simple and not complex type of equipment or technology as we find that those kind of more complex technologies are more prone to failure and a lot more difficult to fix. Um, yeah, especially if you're out in the middle of nowhere and you can't get spare parts easily. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, you can't, you can't easily fly a technician from Germany over to fix, you know, fix your, your technology, so, yeah. So as another example, um, you've got Cape York and Kimberley projects in design stage supporting cattle businesses off-grid. Are they mainly solar power focus? Yeah, they're mainly solar solar battery power focus. Um, And there's probably opportunity there 
particular cattle cattle the cattle station to use anaerobic digestion technology as well. You can use cow manure for anaerobic digestion. So I think you need to make it cost positive from turning the energy using the energy um, as electricity. Um, I think you need a hundred head of cattle. Um, and there's a few stations out there with a few more than a hundred head of cattle. <laughs> Just a um, few. <laughs> So, so yeah, there's there's a few problems and kind of technical issues and how we actually collect the waste and yeah. get it to the digester, <laughs> that type of thing. It's pretty um, widespread, I'm, I'm yeah, imagining. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So there's opportunity there. So um, we're just about out of time now, unfortunately, Michael. But um, just quickly, you've got another arm. IEA has an academic and educational arm as well, I understand. Yeah, yeah. So that, that um, you kind of mentioned that before, our academic and educational arm, we work with yeah, academia and, and industry to try to kind of share our knowledge and what we find with industry. So um, if we can identify concepts that are easily applicable and uh, industry can take up quite quickly, then we try to present that in a, in a really um, you know, industrial language or commercial language so it can be taken up. And we're, we're working with a number of communities. Um, we're going to a, the Yamaganabaka Karabi Festival, and that's a kind of a advocacy and educational festival. Where is um, that? It's down around the Mindy, Walgett, um, Burke, goes through five different communities. Um, I think it starts on the, around the 28th to 29th of, of September. So there'll be, that's an educational festival and there's also a spiritual and cultural festival. So there's three things, kind of a healing of the river, traditional way, an advocacy for for the river and, a, um, and also kind of educational thing. So the the Murray Lower Darling and Murray Lower Darling group will be there. Basically, what they are is a, the Mur- Murray Lower Darling Rivers Indigenous Nations, and they're a kind of a confederation of sovereign First Nation groups for the southern part of the Murray Darling Basin. And they kind of um, go and talk about um, indigenous indigenous practice relating to water, and and they kind of uh, campaign for. Um, indigenous water rights and um, river rights. Sounds fantastic. It sounds exactly what Australia needs right at the moment. Yeah, So exactly. thank you very much for your time today, Michael. It's been very interesting. Um, listeners could find out more about Googling um, Indigenous Energy Australia, but I understand you're revamping your website, so it may be a little bit hard to find mm-hmm. just um, in the short term, so just be aware of that. Thanks again, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Cool. Thanks, guys. Bye. Well, We've been talking to Michael Frangos from Indigenous Energy Australia. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions think tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Previous episodes of this show are available on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe and help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.